1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. <music>
2: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Hello, hello. How do you feel, sort of generally, about whistleblowers? Um,
4: I think I encourage it.
3: Okay, because somebody within the podcast family has has told me something about your behaviour that I think. But perhaps leaves a little to be desired. I wouldn't quite characterize it as bullying, but I think there's been some fashion victimizing going on by you to somebody who
4: works on the podcast. This is Alex, who was wearing a very nice flowery shirt. And I complimented the flowery shirt and said only he could pull it off. And now, look, I know you're trying to sort of, you know, the only, the best form of defense is offense. <laughs> because you are smarting from the WhatsApp fiasco. But, you know, all I can say is apology accepted. I, I just think... Wow, well, and there isn't an apology, actually. I, I just
3: think you're a fashion yeah. shamer. I mean, no, this, no, you, once, you once looked at my shoes and said,
4: oh, I don't like your shoes. That's fake news. That <laughs> is absolutely fake news. <laughs> Mind you, yeah. I mean, can we do our reasons to be cheerful?
3: Well, we we kind of out are. of order, yeah, yeah. Because I'll
4: tell you what: I was on the tube yesterday, and uh, this woman said to Francesca, uh, she turned out to be called. She said, "I just want to say I'm a great fan of the podcast." And I said, "What do you do?" She said, "I work for Calvin Klein." Wow. Now, now. Because politicians make up stories about people they meet on tubes, (laughs) I was also had Heather Stewart, the political editor of The Guardian, with me on the tube because we'd run into each other at the tube station. So I said to her afterwards, look, Heather, you need me to be my witness. This wasn't just a made up story. (laughs) Anyway, that is my reason to be cheerful, out of order.
3: Did you ask if we could be Calvin Klein underwear models on the next
4: campaign? I (laughs) thought thought that might be for the second conversation. You know what I mean? (laughs) She said she was an account manager at Calvin Klein. So I sort of I said, oh, I could have said, look, I know somebody whose name's Jeff who could be a great model for you, but you know.
3: <laughs> well, Ed, Ed, today, I mean, you've turned up wearing uh, a kaftan and you've got like a little Willie Nelson style headband on yeah you've yeah, got he's, he's you've got carrying a, carrying a free the weed placard vivid,
4: a vivid imagination i want to ask you about, oh. I want
3: to ask you about this before we, we get on well, I mean, we really are
4: mixing it up we are i mean you you are mr free the weed this week well it's interesting because it's the it's it's the sort of real tangible um impact of the podcast because it was interviewing neve eastwood for the podcast from release uh that really sort of changed my mind about this issue of uh, cannabis legalization and i followed up william haig who uh, called for it this week by saying i agree with him and you know talking about i think that's the central thing that i took away from the uh, podcast was um you know the the, the argument against always being oh what what about mental health but there's nothing more damaging for mental health than street cannabis and if you g- accept that and you also combine that with the facts from say portugal that use doesn't go after up after legalization what's you know what w- what's the reason not to you know, so much of this is, is is sort of politics, really stopping frontline politicians. I think I said that in my tweet. Front, the Frontline politicians speaking out, it, including me, when I was, but you know, uh, when I was leader. Um, but I think, I think it's the debate is moving. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I think the debate is moving.
3: So uh, my recent pleasure was I went to Liverpool yesterday, and I was there for this American radio show I do about the Beatles, and I met a woman called Frida Kelly who. The age of 16 went to see the Beatles in the Cavern Club and was one of the girls who would go on a lunch break every day and watch them play. And from that, she became a regional fan club secretary and she ended up being secretary to Brian Epstein and working for the Beatles throughout their career. And they made a documentary about her a couple of years ago called Good Old Frida. And I got to interview her, and she was just wonderful. She told a great story that she would book the Beatles haircuts at the barber in the center of Liverpool. And then after they'd had the haircut, she would go and sweep the hair into different bags so that when um, fans from around the world wrote letters asking for a lock of the Beatles' hair, she was able to oblige. How
5: amazing.
4: Yeah.
3: So we've done our reasons to be cheerful. So all that remains to be done in this, this section, then is to
4: say uh, what's, what's coming up on the podcast today. A quick tease. Yes. We're talking about social media mm-hmm. and its impact on children. Um, and, you know, I think both of us are... I'm not not sure about addicts. Well, maybe, yes, addicts. But but I sort of think there's a sort of, you know, do as I do, not as I do, as I say, not as I do, because, you know, there's some worry about children. I totally understand that. And I think about it with my own kids. But then you know we all set a terrible example mm. don't we
3: yeah i've, I've also talked to sort of neuroscientists and scientists about this in the past and i get the impression there is some hysteria around screen time in the same way as when books became popular there were certain factions that these kids have got their heads in books they're not living in real life and we've seen it with television yeah. as well so i think there's definitely something but i think there's a the touch of the moral outrage you've got well. this sort
4: of slightly technophilia aspect to you haven't you which is like on when we did the one on um the sort of you know internet monopolies and all that you know mm. google and all that you're like oh free searches so it's quite interesting you've got a sort of slightly libertarian you know techno streak are you, you saying
3: i'm an addict who's in denial about his no, relationship no, with I'm, technology I'm, and I'm social more, networks i'm more
4: intrigued anyway we've got bban kidron from the five rights foundation that recently authored a report on this and richard graham A consultant adolescent psychiatrist who led the launch of the UK's first technology addiction service. And in addition to that, we are joined by a fine
3: comedian. In fact, the reigning champion of comedy because he won, um, I can never remember what the Perrier award is actually called these days. I think it might be the Foster's award. Uh, but he won the main award at the edit or co-won the main award at the Edinburgh Festival last year.
4: Badois. uh, Malvern Spring.
3: Ed, we're not going to get into a game of um, Mineral Water Word Association, are we? Correct, we're right. not. Okay. Anyway, he is the reigning champion of comedy, and he's coming in to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. It's uh, He's also on XFM, he does a show on there. It's comedian John Robbins.
4: And one other thing, a programming note, as they say, which is that we're going to be at the Hebden Bridge Arts Festival this Friday, the 29th of June at 8pm. Hebden Bridge is a great place. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about what makes a successful town, including with Lisa Nandy, who's a Labour MP, but was also part of the Centre for Towns. And Hebden Bridge has been voted like the best town in Britain many, many times. It's got an amazing arts scene, amazing cultural scene. Um, So we're going to be talking about not just about Hebden Bridge, but we're going to be talking about what makes a town successful and how we can learn some lessons. And if you would like to
3: come along, we will stick details up on social media. But if you Google Hebden Bridge Arts Festival, you'll
4: find us on there.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Milibands and Jeff Lloyd. So,
4: we're joined now by Baroness Biban Kidron, who's founder of the Five Rights Foundation, that recently authored a report on the issue of technology and, and young people, and Richard Graham, a consultant adolescent psychiatrist. Thank you both for joining us.
6: Good to be here. Good to be here, to be here yeah.
4: Biban, just starting with you, you, you're a filmmaker, you're a member of the House of Lords, crossbench peer. What got you into this topic?
6: Well, it's funny. It is actually connected. I mean, a few years ago, I made a film about teenagers and the Internet. And in the course of making a film, I became more and more disturbed about the relationship between the technology they were using and sort of the norms of childhood that we've actually fought for for the last 150 years to sort of establish privileges. And there was this moment, I was in New York and I was... I was talking to one of the people who is generally credited with inventing the Internet. And he said this phrase and it was, you know, this is going to be a democratizing force. There will be no gatekeepers and all people will be treated equally. And I just had a light bulb moment. It's like category error. If you treat everybody equally, you treat a kid as if they're an adult. And if you sort of wind yourself backwards, as I have spent the last five years winding myself backwards, you realize that so many of the problems that kids have in relation to the Internet really stem from that absolutely crucial category, area, which is they're being treated as adults. And kids are many, many things and many and, and, and all kids are different from each other but they're not adults.
3: Sometimes I think, I wish the internet had been around when I had been a teenager. I think I would have been less lonely and found more like-minded individuals. I mean, it's, it's not all negative, right?
6: No, having a problem with something doesn't mean the thing itself is bad. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that's one so what, of the what things. Are the
3: specific problems when you... So,
6: you know, the really obvious one you know is is content kids don't want to see absolutely everything that's available to all people at all times yeah and a lot of kids who we speak to because five rights is very much based around the experience of kids and their advice and our interactions with kids and that has been right from the beginning from describing the five rights and so they 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 actually want to be able to move freely without everything in the world being available to them, whether they want it or not. So that's a really sort of obvious one. The one that is sort of linking us more to the report that we've just published is to do with the intrusive nature of it. So, you know, actually, if you're a kid and you're trying to sort of establish your relationships and maybe you're 13 to 15, so you're in this really kind of, you know, sort of important period with your peers and you're not quite sure who's in, who's out, are you in, are you out?
4: Jeff and I were generally out. Yes. Yeah.
6: <laughs> Sorry about I that, guys. Well, maybe if you'd had SNAP, you would have yeah. started off feeling in, but right. you would have ended up feeling right. out. Yeah, which would have been I mean, worse. Yeah, which would have been worse. My point being is that, that actually a lot of the social media things are based on quantitative notions of social popularity. OK, maybe you can talk about that between families at home. But what they're actually designed to do is to create social obligation. And then you start to see where the problem is. Because the social obligation, if you're not allowed to drop a streak from one day to the next day, to the next day, the next Drop a... Streak, let's say on Snap, yeah? So every day you have to send... In order to keep your streak going, you have to send a message.
4: This is Snapchat.
6: Snapchat. Well, yeah.
4: Are you, are you not on Snapchat? Snapchat, Ed, nor really. Jeremy Corbyn's very popular <laughs> <Yeah>. on Snapchat. <laughs> yeah,
6: and you should call it Snap, not snap, Snapchat, okay. just to be really um, clear yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, it's
4: Snap as that game that you played.
6: Anyway. Old person. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my point being that actually that seems really benign doesn't it, it seems, you know you're just sending a message one a day one a day but kids actually are getting in a world of social obligation where they may be doing that with 18 people with 30 people with you know getting up in the middle of the night to send the message
3: so there's some kind of thing built into snap where you've got to keep it going, otherwise
4: you yeah. you sort of drop down a, a, the rankings in some way. Or you drop Absolutely. Out. Let's hear from Let's hear from Richard. Richard, what do you, talk about what Biben's been saying and, and and build on it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I would take a slightly different spin on that and just think that it creates a world of competition. And as you say, teenagers are very alert to difference and want to be successful and attractive and popular and do the things that cool people do. And of course, now they take photographs of that. And in fact, yesterday I was hearing from a YouTuber who was talking about how on Instagram some of those profiles where people are taking the really good pictures all the time and even sometimes having plastic surgery to look really good in their pictures, you know, there's an impact on their life that wouldn't have been there without the internet and social media. That's not to say, as Beeman says, that it's all bad. It's just, again... If it's not managed in some way, it can certainly tip over into all sorts of areas of difficulty. And these aren't just different ways of scratching the same itch that have been there with teenagers since time immemorial? I mean, it feels to me that everyone gets caught up in something that feels like a global arms race, where you're not just competing with your local group. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, geography defined a lot of what you could do you can now be doing it with people across the planet isn't that positive though as i mean as
4: well as a negative
5: yeah certainly can be you can certainly find people like me as it were that, that that's one of the really great things about the internet that whatever your interest <laughs> that,
6: that we can find you
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes it's really you yeah, yeah, well, I, I think the no, black mirror like, for,
4: okay, for example you're an lgbt young person yep, you feel yep. very alone you can you know yep. 30 years ago you'd have just felt alone you know, now you can reach out to others. I mean, I know you're not saying it's all bad. but Yeah,
6: no, but I'm just going to put on the record, these guys spend more than the NRI on lobbying and we always hear about the LGBT person, (laughs) you (laughs) know, and we always hear about medical science. So, you know, absolutely. And I just want to say I grew up with a lot of LGBT people who found each other, yeah? I am not saying communication is not good and these forms of communication are not good. But I have to go back to this, are you sure it's not just the old rock and roll? It's not the TV and yeah, the thing. It, it really isn't because those things just enhanced life, you know. I mean, it was fantastic. The headphones made it louder, you know, that made life more gorgeous and louder. But, but this is offering other alternate realities at the same time. And they're very often competitive and simultaneous and also, you have to remember that in a child's life, this is not a choice. They are in environments where they have to do homework here. So the interruptions are coming when they're trying to do something intentional. So I. But TV actually, did that.
4: I was sneaking off to watch Dallas when I should have been doing my homework.
6: Absolutely. But you weren't doing your homework with Dallas forcing you, saying, hello, here's Dallas, Mm -hmm. here's Dallas, and what's more?
5: It did (laughs) feel a bit like that. You also (laughs) had to wait a week between episodes (laughs) rather than 30 seconds.
6: I mean, I think you have to sort of put it in the context that we all touch our phones, you know, several thousand times a day, yeah? And That's (laughs) the elephant in the room.
4: I I wondered when that elephant would come crashing through the door of Jeff's loft. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we, we are, since it's arrived, I mean... You know we're all doing this, correct?
6: I know, but I can see you looking excited, but are you excited like we're all doing this like adults are doing it so it doesn't matter for children? No, or are you saying, no, oh, we're all I'm doing we're it, set, I actually recognize that what you're a bad saying example
4: is- so much of this is learned behavior, adults rubbing off onto children as well as children rubbing off onto each other,
5: no no. Well, you know, I think I think both actually. I mean, I think you know one of the tragic situations is for a kid to come out of school and find their parent looking down at their phone. And there's just so much great stuff on your phone, though. Yeah, well,
3: well, um, that's what
6: your kids know now. <laughs> that there's better stuff than them on your phone. Absolutely, you're right. So,
3: so <laughs> but it should make them competitive. Yeah, that's put you in your place, is <laughs> not
6: <doesn't> it? <laughs> uh, I have to I yeah. have to answer that because here's the thing. You know, actually, I agree with Richard completely about that it's a very sad thing. And in fact, the kids that we work very often complain about their parents, you know, and in fact, I I have etched in my mind a girl who said, I have counted my own streak. And I went, I don't understand. I don't understand. And she goes, the streak, which is when my mother's eyes are looking up at me when I come out of school instead of on her phone. And it was more than. A hundred. A hundred times her mother had picked her up and not been looking at her when she walked out. So that is a bit sad and that's a little bit of a moment. But what I want to say about the reason that was shaking my head is, of course, you're right. We're really, really bad examples for younger people. But it's not... Accidental, and that's what the report's talking about. It's saying it's designed, persuasive
4: design, as it's Persuasive design.
6: It is deliberate. It is behavioural design in our phones, in the services, deliberately created to make these services. Because of of
4: likes, favourites, endless feeds, little
6: rewards, the button. You know, when someone's typing at you, little bubbles, little buzz, colours you know, the vibrate, everything. It's not every little thing seems a little bit benign, but when you put it all together, it is a cloud of compulsive technology, absolutely by a billions of dollars industry pointing through your phone to make you behave a certain way. Now, you guys, you do what you like. I don't no, care. I think but it's when bad. it comes to I mean I think kids, we do too
4: much.
6: I'm sure you do, but yeah. when it comes to kids, we have a duty of care and that's where we get pissed, right? Adults, do what you like. You know, the the cost benefit analysis is possibly more in your favour. But when it comes to kids, we have a responsibility, and that's what this report is about.
4: You've just done something in the House of Lords which is quite important in relation to the legislation on this, haven't you?
6: Yeah, in fact, in the, in the course of the, uh, the Data Protection Act, which sort of sounds like a rather dry piece of legislation, uh, I, with the help of colleagues right across the house, actually, um, introduce something called the age uh, appropriate design code and it it's going into the data bill and we're just about in fact the 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 regulator is about to start a uh, consultation this is in. the
4: information commissioner
6: yeah uh, she will start a consultation on it but what we have suggested is that there should be a special Deal for children, that they should enjoy a higher bar of data protection. And I think it's worth saying for your listeners, it's like data protection. What is that? What does that sound like? But I think people forget that data is photographs, address, location, behavior, who you know, where you go, how you interact with things, the keystrokes on your computer. Data is absolutely everything. And so if we get a high level of data protection, and we'll just give you an example, one of the things we're looking at is what should a default setting be like for someone who's five, who's seven, who's 11, About content
4: or about uh, process?
6: About process, about processing data. But people make this mistake of separating out content and data. If it is high, yeah, then automatically it is not spreading. It is not available in the same way. You have certain levels of control. So why not, if it's an 11-year-old, have data high? Why not?
4: What would that mean for the 11-year-old that they couldn't do now that they could do then?
6: It's not so much about what they couldn't do. It's about what people can't do to them. And I think...
5: that's how they're reached, really. It's all this data that's harvested, which it really is. And I think there are like a 100 more pieces of metadata in a tweet than there are characters. So just to give you an example of how rich the data can be about where you are and what you're doing, as, as Beeman says. But then when that's used and you're profiled, then advertisers and other people will be reaching out to you. So that form of persuasion through advertising is is more possible.
3: So is children's data primarily used the same way that we would think of our own data being used for targeted advertising?
6: How about you think about it this way? Where are kids online? What are they doing? And what checks are there about how old they are? And then the answer will be, everywhere, none, Of course, their data is being used like yours. And this is the point that we have not. And that was right at the beginning. You said, how did I get into this? I got into this because I realized that we are literally treating kids as if they were adult and we haven't imagined the digital world with them present. And so actually, you know, if you turn this whole conversation the other way around and say, you know, what do we want? We want intentional use. We want reminders to, to get off, make it as frictionless on and off as, as possible. We want automatically to have the, the, the least toxic settings so they have to consciously go to different places. I actually would like them to go wherever they want to go. What about
4: the snap streak thing that you were talking about?
6: Snap holidays. How about that? Allow snap holidays. I mean, we are in a situation where kids are literally paying each other to keep their phone going and their snaps going when they go on holiday. I mean, that is not unusual. And I, in one of our li- recent workshops, had a kid who was absolutely mortified when he realized he'd spent 32 hours of the previous week on Snap. Yeah? I mean, it's sort of got toxic. So, you know, we do want this technology. We want it in the service of children rather than the children in service of mm. them. And when I'm being colorful about this, I say we've actually made them the serfs you know, in the Silicon Valley. It's literally they're working for these guys for nothing Mm. and look at the share price.
4: Do you want to add anything on the state? Well, no, I I, I
5: think the end point is what most people would think of as the matrix, really, where we're serving the machines rather than the other way around. And uh, it turns out that it wasn't fiction, it was a documentary. Yeah. you, What are you thinking?
3: I watched The Matrix recently and I thought they've got quite a nice life in that simulation. (laughs) I'd be happy with that. I don't mind if my physical body is in a pod being harvested by machines.
6: You should get out the attic more. No, I
3: know. (laughs) But the the way you're envisaging things. Mm. So it would be if you are a child, you go on the internet, you can kind of go anywhere, but go anywhere isn't scary like it is now because there are various settings in place that would um, mean the bits with harmful material yeah, were blocked search. off. Your data wasn't being harvested in the same way. It would be a different version of the internet that kids are using.
6: I think you have to be very careful about that, it's really, it's a really difficult thing to to explain to people because they always think of it as if it's we start where we are now, as if that was the the mountains, the lakes and the air. It's not, it's designed, guys. It's all designed. It's all hardware. Every day there are upgrades. They are deciding how we behave. So I think we just got to put that pin in it and say, no, it's not the same but worse or not the same but safer. It's actually how do we start thinking about kids in this space? So how do we uphold their rights? So how do we uphold their right to privacy? for example. They have a right to privacy. How do we uphold their right not to be uh, commercially exploited? For example, how do we actually uh, uphold their right to support services and safety and so on? We do that everywhere else. And I actually really have to make a political argument here, because I do have these discussions quite a lot. And everyone goes, oh, but that's the business model. Oh, but they won't do that. Oh, but it's how it is. Well, how dare they expect to have a business model that creates harm for children? I am less concerned about a safe world with not, not so much frightening content uh, than I am about the conscious and unconscious use of technology. And by what I mean is if a kid, and I can't believe I'm saying this on, you know, on a podcast, but if a kid really wants to go and get something inappropriate, I actually reserve their right to do so but at least they know they're transgressing. I do not. I do not uphold the right for some service for commercial reasons to be pumping, you know, hardcore gangbang pornography into the hand of an eight-year-old in the, in the playground that doesn't even want it. So that's my first point. But more than that, what I'm worried about and where the, where the report, and I'm sorry to go back right to the report, is the persuasive design thing means that kids lack agency. I mean, there is one thing that to be a democratic, to be an autonomous being, to be a thinking being, to grow up, and I'm actually going to point back now, (laughs) Richard, you know, to have agency as an individual, you have to make independent choice. So if all your choices are being nudged in a Pavlovian way, literally in a Pavlovian way, by the technology you are using, before... You are conscious because you're not an adder. You tell me how that makes an independent, you know, democratically enabled person.
5: I agree. <laughs> um, I know I, I think that's absolutely on the button. I was having a conversation yesterday about actually going back to Descartes and, you know, actually free will and, and those sort of concepts. And actually, it gets close to thinking about liberty then, that if there is, such persuasion going on and that you're sleepwalking in your use of tech then you know there is a moment where we need to wake up and recognize that people's right there's a lot of evidence in the world of well-being that people are happier and healthier if they're choosing to do things that's more rewarding and i think the other research that i often think is really key is a um, research on passive scrolling that came out from Facebook at the end of last year that, again, if you're just on your screen, not really thinking, just looking at stuff, filtering. I mean, there's going to be quite a few sort of guilty expressions, I guess, during this. But it, it's not just it's bad, but it's actually bad for you. And I think we need to be having agency and being active in terms of doing the things that are rewarding and positive and just being a bit more in control of that. In what ways is it bad for you? What passive scrolling. Mm. Um, Well, I think I draw on the sort of uh, research on something slightly different about depression called Mm -hmm. behavioral activation. Well, when people are depressed, they withdraw, they do less rewarding things, they, they cut themselves off from people and expose themselves to more negative, punishing experiences, which... It doesn't, yeah, you don't have to go very far to think, well, actually, that could apply to anyone's use of tech, really. Yeah. Although I sometimes think it gives me something to do
3: when I'm in the fetal position <laughs> yeah. to yeah. engage with the you world. You start rocking. Yeah. I
6: think, yeah. Yeah.
3: If you were rocking, if you were choosing
5: to rock.
6: But we're trying to prevent the whole generation of children having your denuded life, right. you know. I mean, this is the problem. Yeah. And, and, Come out uh, and say what you're uh, yeah. <laughs> no, ah. teasing. Obviously, I'm teasing. But I do think, I mean, you know, just to pick up on the real, you know, What is the problem? So, if you're on your phone before bedtime, twice as likely to not be able to sleep very well. Absolute epidemic of sleeplessness uh, in the classroom. If you take away a phone for five days from a child, their educational attainment goes up. LSE research, you know, the, the memory lab at the University of California says that that if people use Google all the time, they actually don't bother to remember anything. But that doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, in one way, we can all be modern beings. But what the problem is for kids, and I keep on coming back, we're talking about children, yeah, is the same part that develops memory develops imagination. So now they're seeing that the younger kids use this stuff, the less active play, the less imagination. I'm
1: frightened now.
4: You
6: know, Well, you should be frightened. And because here's the big opportunity cost. we got this incredible technology and we're not using it for the purposes of developing the human race in a way that is suitable. And it's worth pointing out, you know, Sean Parker, Tristan Harris, Jack B. These are all
4: people who worked, who were big people in the beginning of the tech industry yeah, who have the, now sort of said too much problem, too far yeah. Yeah.
6: too much too far and but they're literally saying uh, uh, you know what's it doing to our kids brains
4: Let, let's talk about parents um jeff and i are both parents and for the many parents listening or people with nieces, nephews, et cetera, what should we be doing?
5: With very small children, you don't want them to see you using the device too much. So in terms of modelling and sort of giving them a good sense of what's important in the world, you know, time spent with them, doing things together, playing together, talking together, um, those are the sort of things that actually stimulate good development. Uh, it would be a sad world where every baby felt, you know, they were second place to a smartphone. Um, yeah, I, I'm good at B-ban that. B-Ban is pointing it I'm well, at you.
6: I'm only pointing out because you said it's so interesting on my phone. I, I think from there,
5: I think it's like what B-Ban's saying, really. It's about... Limits on screen time. I partly said this
4: personally. We yeah, have limits I, I, on screen I, time. No, B-Ban's telling me I'm doing it wrong.
6: The thing about limits on screen time, it's not. it's not how much... As much as what?
4: Social, in other words, social media. I mean, my children, seven and nine, are not yet in social media.
6: Yeah, but if they yeah. are on, you know, in places on the web where they can right. make music, play music, if you're all on Spotify dancing around the kitchen, that's great. You so know,
5: collective, do more stuff collectively.
6: Definitely collectively. Yeah, I
5: I think sort of joint activities. Similar sort of rules were suggested around television watching back in the day, that you would do it with people and and that there would be discussion points and, and sort of things that could be talked about afterwards. So it actually becomes much more of a social process. Rather than an isolation. I tried
4: to persuade my parents to watch Dallas, but they thought it was a capitalist conspiracy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) They're
6: probably right. They're they're probably right. right.
5: They just suggested
3: another game of class struggle. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
5: (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 that's fine. But I think good media and good content is. Is worth finding, and there are some great platforms. Like there's a really great company in the US called Bim Bam that produces young kids' content um, available on YouTube. That is exactly all of those things. I mean, I'd never thought of doing it collectively, using a screen collectively, oh, yeah. playlists together. You can do all sorts of things together that are really fun. And
6: yeah, no, I mean I agree, and I think this sort of binary choice thing is something we have been given, and we have to be a little bit careful about it. There's no good, bad. In that sense, and the and the and a lot of the thing about the screen itself is actually back to the persuasive design. People are saying that the screen is very attractive; it moves and it jangles, and very young kids get very um, involved quickly. And what we know is that if you get habits before the age of nine, they're almost impossible to to, to change. So it's actually a lot of it is about what you're doing and I think the real tragedy which is why I keep on coming back and saying look this stuff is good but we're not using it in a really great way is the vast majority of children are on about four or five sites for the vast majority of time and actually a lot of research um I haven't got the list in front of me so I don't want to I don't want to be liable a
2: YouTube's got to be on yeah YouTube definitely yeah. yeah
6: but interestingly And and I have real problems with YouTube, certain bits of it, yeah, and I think they could do much better. But interestingly, if you look at the positive outcomes for kids, there is more learning on YouTube, yeah, than there are in the other places they are. So I think that's what I mean is you've got to be a little bit more sophisticated and say, you know, it is a tragedy if a child, you know, a young teen thinks the Internet is Facebook and Facebook alone. But we are watching kids get really into a narrow experience of what the internet is. And so the joke is that we all think that they're the digital natives. But actually, if you look at the research, they are not even on the first rung of the ladder of what they call digital opportunity. And people, even my age, and I'm a bit older than some of you, but you know, even my age, we get more out of the internet than the kids do. So again, it's actually about what's happened to the technology. And that disappointment that I was talking about that a lot of the insiders feel is the same disappointment that I feel. I feel like that there is something here that is for society that is for the future that the kids are going to have to inherit. But can't we give them something decent to inherit?
5: Can I just go back to screens for a moment though, because I think there are a couple of aspects. One goes back to those issues like color and richness of color. I mean tablets are hyper real to my mind and and again, if something can disrupt your sleep there's something about engaging you in a more intense way, and then you bring in which what which is what the uh, iPhone did um, eleven years ago now that reactivity of the screen creates a more immersive experience. So you are deepening the engagement. So thinking back to other forms of media in the past, you would not, well, perhaps people would talk about vinyl as a pleasure of putting the needle on the record, but not in the same way. And so I think when looking at the sort of interaction between a child and a device and the content, you do need to be thinking about how intense their immersion or engagement is and how they're almost sort of allowed to decompress when they're coming up.
6: Yeah. And and the point about the report, and I know I keep on coming back, but, but the reason that we wrote it is that people think it's an accident that they feel a bit attached. And then you look on the bus and everybody's like this. And you look in a classroom and everybody's like this. And you look around your dinner table and everybody's like this. You kind of go. And then when I point out it's not an accident, it's designed in. People are surprised. And actually, we go through So unlike
4: Dallas it really is a capitalist conspiracy. I,
6: yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliantly put. Yeah, yeah. I was a big fan of Dallas myself actually. Ah.
4: <laughs> Another and lefty parents. Ah. I think there's a I think there's I a, was
6: not allowed to go to the the girl guys they thought it was a problem. Exactly you see look. <laughs> Um,
4: I think I feel like we should end on a cheerful note because mm-hmm. this is we're, this is the title of our podcast. It yeah. Reason to be cheerful. So I think don't you think that both B-Ban and Richard have got to give us something cheerful about yes yeah, so about feel positive about, about the about sort of the future about obviously. the future. You know what's the, what's the what's the upside here if we sort of follow you know your guidance?
6: I think the upside is that actually when you talk to children. Um, Or at least when we work with children a lot, and I think that what they are saying is that they are devoted to this idea of a technological world. They absolutely understand that there is something in it for them. And they are very articulate about saying okay, make it fairer. We want it to be fairer. That is the word they always use. And I think very often what they mean is that the social norms that surround them in their families, you know, at school in general, they have a sense of what that means and they want that to exist online. And I think if we actually create a new norm around the digital environment and then put that power in their hands we're going to see all the social change that those utopian you know uh, founders really dreamed of so I'm really I'm really for it but we we got to make it fit for childhood
5: I think we're going to be learning a lot more about what makes us happy and healthy in our use of tech I think we're going to be sort of building that into schools and uh, health services so that people get a better sort of guidance, really, about what to do when you've got these devices in your homes and on your body and possibly inside your body in, in years to come. So I think the agency and the active sort of relationship is is going to be key. And we need to be researching that and finding out what it is that really works for us. Okay.
4: Richard and Bevan, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go off and reform our habits.
5: Yes, but I do need
4: to check Twitter before I do that. So I think you went into that thinking, is this Daily Mail moral panic? Mm-hmm. You come out thinking? Well, it ended up being a very different conversation
3: to what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be, screens are bad, they're interfering with children's brains and the way they're wired. And um, it, it wasn't that at all. There was a touch of that to do with the persuasive design, and I think there were some good points made around that. But the, if the B-Ban's big point about the way the internet Is configured, and the way that children are just treated like the rest
4: of us, and that whole thing needs a rethink. It was it was very convincing. I mean, the funny thing is that I'm definitely convinced on children, but I'm also sort of convinced on us. I mean, I don't know about you, but the the times when I've got rid of my mobile phone, like when I was leader of the opposition, I used to when we'd go on holiday, and I wouldn't take my mobile phone with me. We'd only have Justine's. Now, okay, you're on holiday. But, I mean, it is a very different experience. If you can get rid of your screens, at least for a bit, I do think there's something about your attention span, your just general sort of peace of mind. Do, 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 do you not think that?
3: I'm starting to feel a bit twitchy just at the thought of being <laughs> separated from a mobile phone.
2: Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Well, if you have any thoughts on what you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Although I suppose that is encouraging people to uh, spend more time on the screen, getting to write
4: email. That's we, true. You know, we could give out your home address and then we, we we'll do a, it by post. I think we need a P.O. box. Do you think? Is that where you sent? When you wrote that letter to the Computing Weekly or something, it must be your a Your yes. Your Sinclair. Yes, yeah, yeah. it was a P.O.
2: box. Yeah.
4: Um,
3: so, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast. I notice we've gone over 10,000 followers on the Twitter feed now. Excellent. That's good, isn't oh. it? Uh, or on Facebook, it's facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. This comes from Ben Howarth, who says, hello, Ed and Jeff. In a recent episode of the show, there was a brief aside when Jeff asked about New Labour's New Deal for musicians. Ed... Sounded very dubious about whether there was ever such a policy, and, and Jeff didn't push the point. But in fact, in this instance, Jeff's knowledge of relatively obscure points of the Blair era uh, Labour Party policy trivia trumps Ed's. Yes! In your face! Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Labour did indeed introduce a new deal for musicians in 1999. It followed some controversy when Labour, who had been strongly supported by the music scene before the 1997 election, and indeed even did a campaign event with Creation Records in 1996, reformed aspects of unemployment benefits that had benefited musicians. Were you never at any of those Cool Britannia parties? Was I was the actually trying stars? to
4: remember whether I was at that Noel Gallagher party. I don't. I think the invite got lost in the post. You went skulking by the. Vol- well, I was really officer. lost. Gordon. No, I think I was pretty sort of locked in a room with Gordon. <laughs> uh,
3: so the policy was they could no longer claim the dole unless they looked for paid work and were no longer given leeway to go on tour or play gigs. And then there were protests and campaigns in the NME, which is a music publication ad. Um, Labour then set up... Well, it was. It's just a website now. Um, Labour then. I think, set- yeah, I, think you,
4: I was interviewed in it for one of their last print editions and then <laughs> I got interviewed and then it, 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 it disbanded. <laughs>
3: Uh, Labour then set up a task force With Creation Records' Alan McGee And others, no relation well, yeah. to Debbie No, no, McGee. no, I yeah. know um,
4: So the sequence
3: on herself Yes uh, To find a way to support musicians in the new system The new deal for musicians allowed up-and-coming bands And acts access to advisors uh, To build a career in music whilst claiming support Instead of seeking conventional work experience, and and so on, and uh, he says the best account of this comes in a lengthy biography of Creation Records called "My Magpie Eyes Are Hungry for the Prize."
4: Well, look, well done. I think you are a genuine policy wonk, Jeff.
3: Thank you. He also he makes a good point actually towards the end of his email where he says like. Uh, I wonder if one reason to be cheerful isn't that there are a whole raft yeah. of reasonably successful policy ideas yeah. sat somewhere in the National Archives, abolished for no good reason. I know. In place I mean, better. that is a
4: really good point. Actually, it's quite a good challenge for our listeners. What's the policy that was introduced and then abolished um, that should be brought back? Yeah, okay. I mean, not like capital punishment, but, you know, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a good challenge. Uh, this
3: comes from Andrew Leach. He says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm writing with an observation about episode 38, in which the idea of the universal basic services was introduced and compared to universal basic income. Henrietta Moore, in particular, equated UBI to the benefit system and suggested that it was an extension of or a replacement for much of the current welfare state, citing it as something akin to job seekers allowance. This argument enabled her to rationalise UBS as a more dynamic proposition that would provide services at the point of need in the same way as the NHS does. However surely UBI is a revolution in terms of societal wealth, removing the notion of paid employment as a necessity in order to survive. And if people desire a better quality of life, uh, topped up by uh, by the time-honoured exchange of labour for money, that's their prerogative. Also, to say that professors and bankers and lawyers are somehow undeserving of UBI misses its point, assuming a present-day scenario as a mitigation against future requirements. Can we really say that in a decades time there won't be algorithms replacing those same professional classes um it seems to me that ubs has hijacked the big shift that could be provided by ubi that's you know you interest- sort of you are that's that sort of where you are isn't it yeah i think so i think there's sort of two things that uh, the automation issue i think that's going to change things hugely but then there's this other thing that we've talked about before that what is the value you add to society and does that value always have to be measured in in how how much you earn. Are there Are other ways of measuring people's worth? And I think UBI would go a long way to under underpinning that.
2: Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast. or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
3: And here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we are joined by uh, the reigning champion of comedy, John oh, Robbins.
7: Hello. Thanks, You're the reigning
4: champion of comedy.
3: Well, I've
7: been trying to get that uh, tagline out across various forms of uh, social media, but it's not stuck until now. And, and here, Yeah, you he won, won the Perrier Award last year at Edinburgh. Congratulations. Hey, thank you very much. It's very kind.
3: But you've got to hand it back at the end of August.
7: Well, it's not so much handing it back, Jeff. I have to hand on the flame (laughs) to younger blood. We need, we need new, new voices. Right. Um uh, but yeah you have to you can go back and you, you sort of present it to the next person
3: how awful we were just talking before how awful that would be if it was somebody you thought was terrible
7: <laughs> well like you sort of open the envelope and grimace and then go <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, all right then
3: <laughs> uh, john you've brought some ideas with you which could be potential reasons to be cheerful um, yes what's what's your first one uh, my first one ban all comments online yeah do you know there was a Norwegian newspaper that made people sit a little comprehension test before they were allowed wow. to comment on articles? Really?
7: Yeah. Wow. Nothing is gained by comments below articles. It's just a sort of race to into the mire. Mm. Especially on like YouTube there's that thing where it only takes like 10 comments before someone mentions the Nazis or there was a, I read a story about the um, McDonald's releasing a vegan burger on the Daily Mail website and it was just sort of an absolute car crash immediately. Really? not so even mentioning the word vegan. And you just think, well, if you just got rid of those, people can have their thoughts. They do close them
4: sometimes, don't they?
7: Yeah, they do sometimes. So I think they should close them all the time. And yeah. even, and I'm considering extending this to sort of Twitter and Facebook. Close it down. Well, have the, <laughs> have the message or the, the status and you can like it or retweet it. Because I kind of think that when Twitter's at its worst is when people are getting into spats.
4: I think Twitter is in an ever-decreasing spiral of worseness, though, don't you think?
7: But sometimes it is very useful as a resource for sort of yeah. sort of making connections. But I think that that's when you when you share something. Or, and you I think that thing forums. that they
4: introduced on Twitter, of being able to retweet more easily, retweet somebody else, yeah, or, and or subtweet and quote, was kind of a disaster in retrospect. People take somebody who's made some nasty comment about them retweets it and then says, you know, this guy's a complete Wazak, you know, et cetera,
7: et cetera. And then it sort and of... But they do use words as harsh as wazuk. <laughs> <Yeah, constantly>. exactly. <laughs> they use 1980s
4: word. <laughs> words like wazak.
7: Uh Good. Okay, we, we buy it. Uh, what's your next one, John? Okay, so... On the Radio X show with Ellis, we're not allowed to talk about politics, especially when there's an election on. It's quite quite strict rules because if you do, you have to then be certain sort of balance towards everyone yeah, to, to the we've second. Yeah, we've got those rules too, actually. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but what we did find we were allowed to do is conduct a straw poll during an election about how you voted and what you have on your chips. <laughs> uh, and we call it Chips. And uh, we, there's a very interesting demographics there. Is this red sauce or brown sauce? Or anything. Or salt vinegar or nothing. Yeah. So Labour voters tend to be much more sort of narrow-minded in their chip selections. They're sort of mainly the classics of uh, salt, vinegar and ketchup. Um, Greens go curry sauce. Oh, oh, interesting. That's a fun fact. Yeah, And Tories more likely to have mayonnaise, which I thought was actually quite continental. Mm. So my idea was for a chip license, whereby any uh, vendor or shop or restaurant that sells chips cannot sell them without having all the main condiments available, because I don't think there's a frustration quite as acute as ordering chips and then being told they have no vinegar. Yes, And anyone who has ever been handed balsamic vinegar when they've had chips will know the hell (laughs) of of having chips with balsamic vinegar. And once, get this, I was at a burger place and I had burger and fries and I said, oh, could I get some ketchup? And they said, I'm sorry, we've run out. And That's the not sort good. of fury inside was like, but That's you can't, but you good. can't. No, you, you should can't.
3: shut shut her up.
7: If you haven't got the That's full array of good. condiments available, you, the shutters Or, should... Common sense. Just pop to the Sainsburys across the road. Yes,
4: I'm. I'm making confession here. Go on. I'm not a salt and vinegar
7: man. What? No. What have? What have? You, what do you have on your chips? Well, I don't I've say nothing. Ketchup. That's the weirdest. No, I have a bit of
4: ketchup, but I mean. Okay. I'm not a not Norton Salt and Vinegar man. Ed, this is this sorry. whole other side I'm of sorry you. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah.
7: hmm. But you're in keeping with the demographic of your voters. Is that because right? Because the, the Labour vote tend to stick to the three main ketchup, vinegar, salt. Right. They're not curry sauce guys, they're not mushy pea ladies. Not.
3: Did you, much did, you, actually. did you incorporate gravy into this? Because I'm from the north, and in yes. the north, you get gravy included in all, all chip shops, which wow. is a rarity down south. I hate
7: to say this, Jeff, but gravy is inextricably linked with UKIP. No, I'm afraid so. Now there's your the dirty secret. Come <laughs> out, maybe.
4: so do I have to start yeah. voting yeah.
3: UKIP now that I, I realize that there's a correlation? No, you
4: already to- have been, and now you've been
7: rumbled, basically. <laughs> But it's, it's quite nice on a radio show that has to be impartial to be able to just run through going, Ian, Croydon, vinegar. <laughs> Linda, Brighton, green, mushy peas.
3: So our local chippy does a thing, they have vinegar and then they have another bottle of something called non-brewed condiment. Have you oh, come across this? Oh, let me tell you about this, What What is
7: it? What's going on? So there's a difference between vinegar and chip shop vinegar. You you can't legally call chip shop vinegar vinegar because it's not vinegar. It's a concentrate that is then watered down. So it's brought in in these big, Sort of um, massive gallon containers. They then water it down, and I prefer it to. And you vinegar. wonder why I don't like it on my <laughs> chips. <laughs> Uh, and that's non brewed
3: condiment. And this is the one where you can sort of feel it burning the inside of your gullet mm, as it goes it's down. It's when you
7: smell it and it kind of gets right in your So, nose. Yeah, so
4: it's called salt and vinegar, but is that in fact salt and non brewed condiments.
7: Absolutely, it is. Wow.
4: You know so much about it. You this. really do. I mean, honestly, you should, you, this is your chosen subject on Celebrity Mastermind. I should be king of, king of the you condiments. You've two minutes on fish and chip condiments starting well, now. I mean, that is. You, well, Ed. You, you I, are going to
7: overachieve, on I this. I went on Celebrity Mastermind and I lost to Tim Farron. You didn't. I did, and I was doing. Are you serious? Yeah, I was doing the rock band Queen. Right. Yeah. The entirety of their history. Oh my God, n- I'm sorry, sorry to have entered
4: into a sensitive subject. I didn't do my
7: research. And Tim Farron did Blackburn Rovers in the nineties. He didn't do gay sex. No, absolutely uh. not. But he he took. Un- uh. <laughs> He did Blackburn Rovers in the 90s. He's got strong views on gay sex. So he's narrowed right down there yeah. to just 10 years of yeah, a football yeah. club, and I've done, what, 40 years of, of Queen? I'm so sorry. Well, next time you can do
4: fish and chip condiments. I'll do condiments. Condiments. Condiments, <laughs>
7: condiments past, present, and future. Not condiments of the 90s, Farron. Right. <laughs> um, all right, then your next one. Sort of a toss up between two of them. Oh, go on. No, give we, us both. Give, of them, us both. give us both. Well, one of them's quite an in depth overhaul of alcohol duty. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's my idea. Mm-hmm. So first off, you bring in minimum pricing. So it's basically saying you can't charge less than uh, a pound for a two-unit strength can of lager, okay? Right. And it's to, to target the super high-strength ciders yes, and, yes, and yes. lagers, um, which I think is, is a fantastic idea. And as a fan of drinking and of, of beer especially, I think it's a good thing. So I'm also a big, also big proponent um, of uh, what Ellis and I call keeping it session, which is to drink lower-strength alcohol, which means that you can drink for longer. Your hangovers aren't as extreme and would probably, I think, uh, contribute to lessening antisocial behaviour. And we define session as anything that's 4.5% or below. So as well as the minimum pricing, you then have um, a more dynamic tax approach to alcohol based on its strength. So my example, this is for beers and ciders, 0-3% ABV, no tax, uh, 3.1 to 4%, 10p. Uh, 4.1 to 4.5, 20p. And then we bump it up a bit, 4.6 to 5.5, 40p. Kind of says this is the most detailed proposal we have ever had on this podcast. Right. <laughs> and
4: that replies to all, yes. all parts of this podcast. <laughs> well, does, yeah, yeah. It doesn't uh. stop
7: there. <laughs> so 5.5% and above, that's 60p. Alongside this, there is a maximum pint price which is also tied to the uh, ABV. So this is to stop the situation where you go into a sort of a nice pub or a nice bar. ABV. uh, Which is um, alcohol by volume, so that's the strength. Um, You go in, you order a pint, and they bring you the pint, and they say, "Um, that'll be £6.50, please. And every part of you wants to say, have you lost your mind? But it's too late because the pint's there, and there's that moment of awkwardness where you don't want to sort of have Send a go at someone who's not faulted, who's not faulted because you can't, it can't be, it can't be £6, it can't be, it's a pint. So the the maximum price is tied to the strength. So uh, four uh, uh, so, and a half percent, £4.50. Five percent, £5. Unless You it's, should be working for Customers and Exiles. Does this penalise wine drinkers? Um, that that that's only to, to pints of beer or cider. Okay, so wine drinkers, you the, the minimum alcohol minimum would would impact a bit. So you wouldn't be able to get four pound bottles of wine anymore.
4: I'm not I honestly hope that a civil servant who works on alcohol duties is listening to this podcast. I would love to, and will invite them. you in. Oh, that would be for the best. a for a sort of you know. Without prejudice meeting, but to listen to your ideas I think you've done the thinking oh, that I think you have done the thinking that deserves that meeting don't you think
7: Jeff? yeah absolutely. This, this is a real passion for you yeah so the minimum pricing which also drives people into the pubs away from the supermarkets which stops people preloading yes. getting drunk before and also I think we need to increase the responsibility that landlords used to have to control how drunk people get yes. so if someone causes mischief yes in a town center, the place that served them when they're drunk should should get some penalized I because there was some plan to well, do that it's illegal to serve someone who's visibly drunk right, right? And, and every landlord has the right, right to refuse sale but how many people yeah. actually do that especially in a nightclub you. how do you know if someone's yeah. do they only have to come to the bar? well look i think second? this is
4: i think it's sort of slightly i sort of tip my hat to you for mm. the, the the hard thinking don't you think Jeff? absolutely, absolutely. great well Customers and excise, we're waiting for the call. Yeah, we can, can we take a photocopy of your document?
7: Definitely. You, well, I could send you the spreadsheet I've De- got, if you want.
4: <laughs> Definitely. We'll pass it on.
7: And, uh, and what was your other idea, John? So my other idea is massive amounts of funding for um, what you might describe as slightly um, vague and annoying ailments.
3: Oh, you are preaching to the converted, converted here. Ed and I have any number preaching of... Preaching to the hypochondriac here. So my ailments.
7: Th- theory is that often the ailments that are slightly less researched are the ones that actually impact your quality of life the most. So, for example, something like, say, psoriasis or eczema or IBS, the vaguest of them all, which is the sort of the GP's nightmare of how to treat that. Imagine if you chucked a £100 million at IBS surely because because for people who've got those sorts of things low-level ailments low-level refunding. ailments but also something like um you know psoriasis for example is not necessarily a low level ailment it's a serious problem but it's all all the companies seem to be aimed at giving you stuff that relies on you having the problem forever so they can keep selling yes. you the ointments and things yeah whereas actually if you know if head and shoulders could cure dandruff i doubt they would because it would mean you don't have conspiracy theory i'm no way a conspiracy theorist but there isn't no, there's no reason to, for, for the sort of the pharmaceutical industry mm. to spend a lot of money on it because you they're making money by the little the little sort of things that improve it 10 percent as opposed to the stuff that gets rid of it
4: it's also a little known fact that head and shoulders helped get donald trump elected by funding bots in order to do it
7: is is that true?
4: Really? No. Oh, right. <laughs>
3: Just part of the conspiracy. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. <laughs> I always feel like I'm a drain on the NHS if I ever go and bother the doctor with any of my myriad ailments. No, 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 it doesn't Jeff, have that problem. You are a drain on the NHS.
7: <laughs> I don't. I I lost my voice before my tour this year, so I had to get something for my throat. But I, my theory is that if I go once every four years, when I do go they'll take me very seriously because I can go, hey, I, I mean, I very rarely come to the doctor.
3: Uh, John, thank you for those. Um, Brilliant. I'm trying to think. You've got the radio show on Radio X with Ellis, yes. which is also available as a podcast, hugely popular podcast. And thank you, you very much. You do live recordings of that from time to time, anything like we, that? We do.
7: We, we've got a book coming out in uh, October called The Holy Bible, which is um, the sort of uh, the book of our show, going into more detail on some of the stuff we talk about. And um, we're also touring that from the launch date. So from October the 18th, we've got dates in, going around the country doing live shows. Great. John Robbins, thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much
3: for
4: coming.
2: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: We're in the outro. We're in the outro. You got anything fun over the next few days? No. I have. What? I'm going round to Ozzy Osbourne's house. Wow. Yeah. How come? Um, Again, it's for this Beatles show I do for American Radio, and he is this huge Beatles fan. It was uh, through listening to their music that he wanted to be a musician in the first place. So I'm popping round to his house on Monday uh, to get him to pick some songs, and I'm very excited. How great. When I was in Liverpool, I went to a Beatles shop, and I thought, shall I get a little present for Aussie to definitely to move up. But, well, I, and then I was looking and, and the best thing I could have got him really was some Beatles slippers because mm. I think he's probably a man who shuffles around the house in slippers quite yeah. a lot but then I don't know his shoe size and I didn't want to mm-hmm. you know you, you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to misjudge that. Do you? No, no. But you don't. yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about that. It's the thought that counts. Yes, and there it is. I'm on record thinking about it. Yeah,
4: and let's thank our guests. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Biban Kidron of the Five Rights Foundation, Dr. Richard Graham, and thanks to John Robbins. And
3: uh, you can hear John on Radio X, which is what XFM is called these days. I get very confused with it. i still called Snickers Marathon half the time. So, you know, it takes me a long time to
4: adjust. Because you're a child of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. uh,
3: thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces our podcast, to Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd for the backup and policy research. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents. Ed Seed composed the music. And Emily Power, she designed our artwork. Really powerful for all your artwork needs. He's been the passive scroller, he's been the dedicated follower of fashion, and these have been
1: reasons to be cheerful.